Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Those are words from a hymn I learned growing up, a hymn I've taught to uh, my kids. And that hymn has some powerful truth. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Is that true? Does our obedience matter when it comes to us experiencing joy in our relationship with God? Well, it does, and we'll see that clearly in our text this morning. So open with me to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8, we are continuing our study through this Old Testament book, and we've made it to the 8th chapter. Joshua chapter 8, verse 1. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you are physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I've given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its livestock. You shall take his plunder for yourselves, lay an ambush against the city behind it. So... Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall, not, uh, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we are grateful for another opportunity to gather as a family of faith to fix our minds' attention and our hearts' affection upon you. What a a joy to be in the presence of the great I Am. And Lord, we come to this moment with expectancy, with anticipation. We ask you to work in our midst as we study your word. Holy Spirit of God, would you take your word and and grip our hearts with it that we might be transformed. Help us in these moments to see the glory of Jesus Christ and the life-changing power of the gospel. And help us to see, Lord, the role obedience plays in our Christian journey. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Last week we studied Joshua chapter 7 where we looked at a very sad story. In Joshua chapter 6, as the Lord gave Jericho into the hands of the Israelite army, he gave them an instruction. He said, when you take the city of Jericho... You'll see some silver and gold. Don't take it for yourself. You need to put it into the Lord's treasury for future provision for his people. But there's a man in Achan 
who did not heed that command. And when he saw some silver and gold in Jericho, he took it for himself, he took it home, buried it under his tent, and held on to that money or that wealth. Well, in Joshua chapter 7, uh, after Jericho, when they go up to try to conquer Ai, they thought it was going to be very easy. I mean, God gave them victory over Jericho. This is a smaller city. God will surely give them victory over Ai. But instead of victory, they find themselves running for their lives. They flee before the people of Ai. They experience utter defeat. And the Lord shows Joshua and the people, this is the reason you lost. There is sin in your camp. Someone has disobeyed me in my order not to take the silver and the gold. So God showed them through a process that the man was aching and he and his family are are judged in a devastating manner for their sin and disobedience. And then in chapter 8, God says, now it's time. Now that you've dealt with the sin, it's time to obey me and go up and conquer the city of Ai. And that's what chapter 8 is all about. And throughout this chapter, we see the importance of obedience and see something about uh, what obedience consists of and what it looks like and what it means for us. I want to give you this morning from the text four critical truths concerning obedience. Four critical truths concerning obedience. The first is this, and this is so important. Obedience is divinely empowered but diligently pursued. Obedience is divinely empowered but diligently pursued. We see Two parallel realities throughout this chapter. Look what it says there in verse 1. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I, God says, have given into your hand the king of Ai. But verse 2, he says, And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. So notice the two realities. Reality number one, hey, I'm going to give you Ai. I'm going to provide what you need to have victory. Reality number two, but you've got to do something. You've got to rise up and go fight. You've got to take the city just like you did Jericho. Uh, Fast forward with me down to verse 18. This is after they set the ambush and after the Lord gives them the strategy they need to conquer Ai. Verse 18, when it's clear that God had given Ai into their hand, the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin for that is, that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. So we see the two realities again. God's saying, I have given AI into your hand. Hey, Joshua, stretch out the javelin. You got to do something too. And so we see those two realities in Joshua chapter 8. But we also see these two realities throughout the Bible, the the entire uh, revelation of God's word. The Bible strikes the balance often between these two realities. So here are the two realities, very simply put. Number one, We need God's help to obey. Over in John 15, 5, Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't have success or victory. You can't obey me without my help. And so the Lord says, I'm going to do my part. 
I'm going to provide the, the strength and the wisdom and the wherewithal you need to obey. And so we need God's help to obey. But the second reality is this. We must exert effort to obey. We can't just sit back and say, okay, God, do your thing. No, the Lord says, I will do my thing in, in accordance with you doing your thing. You've got to put forth some effort. Over in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible says that the Lord has, by his divine power, given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In other words, God has given us everything that we need to live the Christian life and to live the Christian life victoriously. Aren't you grateful for that? So God is, he's given us all these resources by his divine power. So you might read that verse and think, well, we can sit back and relax and God's going to do it all. Which well, is a few verses later, in verse 5 of that same chapter, the Lord says, your role is to, listen to these three words, make every effort. God's given you the power and the resources, and the wherewithal. Now you've got to put forth some effort by God's grace to work on your Christian character, to live for Him, to obey Him. We must exert effort to obey. Donald Madvig, the Old Testament scholar, says this, this time, speaking of Joshua and Ai, this time they had the divine promise of victory, a much larger army, and a far better strategy than they did in chapter 7 when they were defeated. The intertwining of miracle and human effort is hard to unravel in the book of Joshua. Even with God's help, common sense and the best military strategy could not be neglected. So God was going to do his part, but Joshua and the men had to do their part. So here's how it works. Here's how we see God's God's empowerment with our effort. First of all, God's commands direct our effort. Over in verses 1 and 2, the Lord says, when you go up against Ai, set an ambush, and that ambush will allow you to have victory over that city. And so God gave them a command to direct their effort. But God gave command, they still had to do it. They still had to follow his command and, and put the ambush in place. And so God's commands direct our effort. We need to know what God wants us to do so we can do it. Secondly, God's promises encourage our effort. In verse 1, he says, I have given the city into your hand. That is a promise of God. So as the people obeyed, they had the promise of God that they would have success. And that encouraged them to be obedient. But third, God's power fuels our effort. In verse 18, he says, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. It's God's power that is giving them the victory, that is fueling their effort to take that city. And so, we need God's help to obey. We can't do it without Him. But God calls us to exert effort, to be diligent in our faith, so that we live a life of obedience toward God. Both those realities are in Scripture. Both are very, very important. I was at a conference some time back, and I was on a panel in front of the group that had gathered there to answer some questions and speak on some different topics. And so I'm sitting on the, the platform with these other uh, pastors and speakers, and there's a guy sitting right beside me. He was one of the conference personalities. 
and it was his time to share some things. And so he began to tell this story, a favorable story, about a pastor that he knew. And here's what this guy said sitting right beside me on the platform. He said, this pastor was called to a new church. And when he got to the new church, God told him that he was not supposed to study for his sermons for six months. He would just sit there in the worship service. He'd walk up to the front, and the Spirit of God would tell him what to say when he got to the pulpit. Now, I'm listening to this guy saying this, and I begin to look out at the congregation, and people are on the edge of their seat. Wow, that sounds so spiritual. Wow. The only problem with that is the Bible. When Paul wrote Timothy, a pastor, here's what he said. Timothy, study to show yourself approved. That's what God said. So if the voice in your head tells you something that contradicts what God has already said in his word, that voice is not God. And so I'm horrified by this. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I can't believe what this guy's saying. And some of my friends were out in the the group, and they were laughing because my face looked so... I couldn't hide my disdain for what he was saying. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, what if that were true? I mean, what if that was my, my, uh, my posture this past week? I show up to the office, put my feet on this desk, let go and let God. God, you give me everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have the resources, I'll just, I'll just cruise this week and I'll get up in the pulpit and I'll just, I'll just go from there. You know what that, what that would mean? That would mean right now I'd be flying by the seat of my pants. And it wouldn't be pretty. The Bible says study to show yourself approved. It's, it's God giving you the effort, giving you the wherewithal, giving you the resources. But you got to do something too. That's what obedience looks like. It is God empowered effort. So God, all, listen, God will always do his part. The question of obedience is this. Are you doing your part? Are you putting forth diligence and effort to obey what God has said? So obedience is divinely empowered, but diligently pursued. Here's the second reality about obedience Obedience flows from knowledge of God's word. In other words, you can't obey God's commands if you don't know God's commands, right? Uh, We've got to know what God's word says. We cannot obey what we do not know. Now look in verse 30. After God gives them victory over Ai, it says, At that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. And so after their victory over Ai, instead of going to the next city, they go into the mountains where there are two mountains close together, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and they they gather together for a ceremony. Now why in the world did they do that? Because God through Moses told them to do that. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses told the people, when you cross the Jordan... When you get into the promised land, go to Mount Ebal and have this ceremony that I will prescribe for you. And so they knew God's word. They knew Deuteronomy. They had it. And because they knew God's word, they did what he said. They went to Ebal and carried out this ceremony. We cannot obey what we do not 
No. The reason they go to Ebal is in direct obedience to the command of God in Deuteronomy chapter 27. I said 24 earlier. Chapter 27. So we cannot obey what we do not know. Now in this text, we see the importance of the word of God. First of all, we see the importance of the written word. Look what it says in verse 32. There in the presence of the people of Israel, when they had this ceremony at Mount Ebal, there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. So what does Joshua do with all the people gathered? He writes down the Bible. He makes a copy of God's word in plaster uh, on stones. Why? To reiterate to the people, it's important that you have God's word in written form. Now in verse 1 and in verse uh, later on in verse 18, God speaks to Joshua audibly. Hey, rise, go to Ai, take the city. But isn't it interesting that God didn't want his people to rely on his audible voice. He wanted them to have the objective word of God, which would be a foundation for their life, for their ministry for their obedience. Because listen to me, if you don't have an objective standard to live by, and you live by experience, your, your heart is tricky, and it can lead you astray. That, that voice in your head that you think is God, it could be the bad salsa from last night. Right? I mean, we can get experience wrong. We can misinterpret and, and, and all of that. So don't live your life looking for some voice, for some experience, for warm and fuzzies. God has spoken. It's in his word. It's important that we build our lives upon the objective standard of the word of God, the importance of the word. Listen, if you're going to live a life of obedience, you've got to know the word. It's right there. We have copies everywhere in our society. We've got to read it consistently to know what God expects. So we see the importance of the written word, but secondly, we see the importance of Scripture saturation. Look what happens in verse 33, the ceremony. All Israel, a sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal. More on that in a few minutes. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read, now watch this, all the, all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. So they, they read God's word to the people there at that ceremony. It says in verse 35, There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. So so Joshua gathers all the people. Verse 35 says, the the men, the women, the little ones, the sojourners who lived among them, he gathered them all and simply reads the Bible to them. So he wanted them to know it's important you have the written word of God and it's important that you interact with it. You read it, that you hear it that you respond to it, we must live in such a way that our lives are saturated with Scripture. That's what we see here in this text. And so, what does this help us to understand? If we want to obey God's commandments, 
we have to know God's commandments, and we will not know God's commandments if we don't read the Bible, right? It's interesting, I've heard this story about different settings, kind of the same story, as the gospel goes forth all around the world. I've heard missionaries talk about places in remote areas where they will see the gospel go forth and people get saved. And churches will start and God will call out pastors in that new church, in that new culture. But here's the issue. These brand new pastors haven't been taught the word of God. They're brand new Brand new believers in many cases and have not studied the Word of God the way that we have here in the States. And in some of these areas, it is culturally acceptable to mistreat your wife. Like, it's acceptable culturally to to be abusive or to demean your wife or to even ignore your wife. That's acceptable. So I've heard missionaries talk about, you know, training pastors and, and they'll get these pastors together, and these pastors are awful to their wives. And, and so the missionaries, or whoever the Bible teacher is, says, hey, let's, let's, let's read Ephesians chapter 5 together. And they'll show them a verse like this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. If you're going to love your wife, there's no room for abuse. There's no room for ignoring them. There's no cause to demean them if you're going to love them the way Jesus loves us. And, and there needs to be this teaching about how to treat your wife. And, and the pastors, you know, the light comes on. Oh, I didn't know that. For them to follow the biblical command to love their wife, they had to learn the command, right? Learn the expectation. And, and and missionaries can teach him to accelerate. And I believe if a pastor is walking with the Lord and reading the Bible, the Spirit will show him that and work on that in his life. But, but this accelerates the process for a missionary to say, hey, here it is in God's Word. Ephesians 5.25, love your wives like Christ loves the church. When you know the command, you can obey the command, right? And so, obedience comes from knowing the Word of God. Third, obedience is our response to grace. Obedience is our response to grace. I, want, I don't want you to get from the sermon that obedience earns with us some standing before God. Or we can be saved if we live a, a certain level of obedience out in our lives. You, you're not good enough to save yourself. Because no, no matter how obedient you are, you've got some disobedience in your life that must be dealt with. And that's what we see here in this text. Obedience is our response to grace. I want you to see two things about grace in this text. First of all, I want you to see the place of grace. The place of grace. Notice what it says there in verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Notice the location of the altar. It's on Mount Ebal. Now, These two mountains are interesting, Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. And I wish I had more time to unpack this. But there's a a geographic anomaly with these mountains. They're they're close together. And at the bottom of the mountains, they get get very close together. And there's sort of a natural amphitheater there. And the acoustics are unbelievable. Like you can stand there with, with thousands of people and talk, and people can hear you all throughout that valley. Even standing on top of the mountain, people can hear what's being said down in the valley. 
And so they come to this valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, just like Moses said over in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Now here's what these mountains represented. Mount Gerizim represented the blessings of obedience. He said, Moses said, hey, take half the tribes, put them on Mount Gerizim. This mountain will signify what it means to obey God, what it means to be blessed by God because of your obedience to God. The other mountain, Mount Ebal, represented disobedience and cursing. They would stand on half the tribes, stand on that mountain, and they would read the, the curses that would come as a response to their disobedience if they persisted in it. So Mount Gerizim, blessing, obedience. Mount Ebal, curses, disobedience. You see the different representations there? Now, isn't it interesting that the altar is to be built on Mount Ebal? The mountain that that represents disobedience. That's where the the altar is to be built. Why? Because God wanted them to understand, as you seek to obey me, you need to understand, you've got some disobedience in your life that must be dealt with. No one perfectly obeys me. You deserve ebal. You deserve curses. You deserve judgment because of your disobedience. So, On that mountain, I want you to build an altar, the location of the altar. I will make a way for you to be reconciled to me even though you've sinned. That's why the altar's there on that mountain. So notice the location of the altar. And then secondly, notice the composition of the altar. Look in verse 31. It says that Joshua built an altar to the Lord, God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel... As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. Why was it important that the stones that made up the altar be uncut by human tools, by human hand? Francis Schaeffer says this is to get the point across that salvation is purely by God's grace, not by human effort. Schaefer calls it humanism. You, you'll not save yourself. The altar is not something you, you build and fashion to save yourself. It's God doing it. And the uncut stones remind them this is a God thing, not a human thing. But third, notice the activity on the altar. Look in verse 31. They offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. This is in accordance with the sacrificial system that God instituted through Moses. The shedding of blood for the sins of the people. And all of the sacrifices on the altar, on Ebal, and all the sacrifices throughout Israelite history pointed to the ultimate sacrifice when Jesus Christ left heaven, came to earth, went to the cross, and died for you and for me. And the shedding of blood on the altar was a reminder, you have disobeyed. You need blood shed for your guilt. If you want to be reconciled to me, and this all pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The altar on Mount Ebal was provision for God's people to be reconciled to him even though they were disobedient. It was a a marker of grace. Even though you deserve curse, I've made a way for you to be saved. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, 
Sin brings judgment. The judgment of sin is death, but the sacrifices show that it is, it is possible for an innocent victim to die in the place of the sinner. In those ancient days, the victim was an animal, but the animal pointed forward to the only truly sufficient sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is by faith in his death for us that we escape sin's punishment. And so the altar is a reminder that grace is available for the disobedient. The Lord's saying, hey, Obedience is important, but don't think obedience saves you. You need forgiveness for your disobedience. That's why the altar is on Mount Ebal, a reminder that grace is available for the disobedient. But notice the scope of grace. Who is this grace for? Look in verse 33. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests. Look in verse 35. There is not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Who are sojourners? Sojourners are people who are not ethnic Jews that believed in the one true God and drew near to him by faith. And God made provision for them to be saved and to be a part of the community of his people. And so this grace of forgiveness, this grace of reconciliation signified by the altar was available for the Jews, but also available for anyone that would come to him and believe in him. Which is a reminder that throughout the entire witness of Scripture, we see God's heart for Jews and Gentiles, which is really good news for this Gentile. Aren't you glad that the scope of God's grace is all peoples? And so we see here that their obedience was not to earn salvation. They weren't able to do that. They had all already disobeyed God. Their obedience was to be a response to God's grace by providing an altar, by providing sacrifices for their sins. You know, if someone gives me a million dollars, I could have two different responses. Response number one could be, well, of course you did. I deserve it. I deserve the million bucks. So of course you gave me a million dollars. That that could be one response, right? The second response should be, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. You didn't have to give me a million dollars. And I'm just really, really grateful that you did. Thank you. Gratitude, right? You know what obedience is? Obedience for the Christian is our thank you for God's grace. It's us saying, God, you have been so good to me in saving me through Jesus Christ, and I'm not not obeying you to try to earn your favor. I already have your favor through Jesus. Now I'm obeying as a response of gratitude to all that you've done for me. Obedience is a response of grace. But here's the fourth and last thing. Obedience matters. It matters. Obedience is divinely empowered but diligently pursued. It flows from knowledge of God's word. It is our response to grace. And it matters. Now the timing of the ceremony is interesting. They had just seen illustrated the principles they are remembering at Ebal and Gerizim. Chapter 7, disobedience and defeat. Chapter 8, they obeyed and they experienced what? Victory. And now they're on Mount Gerizim saying, hey, if we obey, we will be blessed by God. 
And they're on Ebal saying, but if we disobey, we will be cursed by God, just like we saw at Ai. So God is reminding them through this ceremony of the importance of obedience. You can read about this ceremony over in Deuteronomy chapter 27, the, 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 the things they said about obedience and blessing and curses. And the, the, the truth is this. There are consequences for disobedience. Amen? There are consequences. They, they, they read out in chapter 27 curses for disobeying God. If we ignore God's commandments, we can, ex- we can expect God to curse us. We can expect the consequences for our sin. Galatians chapter 6 says that we reap what we sow. God is not mocked. And so if we ignore God's word, ignore God's commandments, and just do our own thing, you can exp- expect hardship brought about by the Lord. Because of your disobedience. But here's the flip side of that. And this is glorious. There are blessings for obedience. Obedience doesn't save you. But when you as a redeemed believer in Christ obey him, there are great blessings in that obedience. So do you want a blessed life? Wait, what kind of blessings come when you obey? Well, when you live an obedient life, life begins to make more sense. Because you're doing things God's way, right? You begin to see spiritual success when you do things God's way. You begin to experience joy and peace and purpose because you're doing things God's way. Those are all blessings of obedience. But those are not the, the greatest blessings. Let me show you the greatest blessing of obedience. Look with me in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're going to close with this so we can get Claire home to cook me some lunch. John 14, Ephesians 5. Somebody read Ephesians 5, quick. All right. John 14, verse 23. Look what the Bible says. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying obedience is a response to grace. We're grateful, we love him in light of what he's done for us, and because of that we seek to obey him. And Jesus said, if you will obey, you will experience The Lord Jesus Christ drawing near. And you will experience the Father drawing near. And that is the greatest blessing of obedience. If you will seek to obey God, you will experience new levels of intimacy and fellowship and closeness with the God of the universe. Isn't that worth it? When you obey, you get more of God. He he, he draws near. See, some of you feel so far from God right now. You're a believer. You've been saved. But you feel very distant from God. And could I suggest that maybe it's because there are vast areas of disobedience in your life. 
if you will deal with those disobedient areas and begin to obey God by His grace, by His power, by His strength, by His wisdom, for His glory, when you begin to obey, you will experience a new closeness with God. It's a promise from Jesus Himself. And it is the greatest blessing of obedience. Don't, listen, don't just obey so, so life will go better. Obey so that you can get more of Him, right? That motivation will spur you on to live a consistent life of obedience. There are blessings in obedience. And so here's what I want you to walk away with today. Obedience doesn't save. We're saved by grace through faith. But the saved obey. Obedience doesn't save, but the saved obey. That should be the the consistent manner of their life, living a life of God-empowered, Spirit-empowered obedience for His glory. So is it true? Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Is it true? It's true. We trust Him for His salvation. We trust Him for His provision. We trust Him for His presence. We trust Him in His promises. But then we obey Him. And as we obey, we will experience a happiness in Christ that nothing in this world can give you. 